you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me in them to Psalm 97. It's been our habit, our habit for the last number of years in the summer is to be working our way through the Psalms together. This morning we give our attention to Psalm 97. As I shared last week uh, about our ministry on campus, I just want to continue to remind you that in about two and a half weeks, town's going to start filling up as the dorms open up and students make their way this way, and we'd love for you to be praying for us and others as we seek to serve uh, the campus and reaching out to the gospel, reaching out to students with the gospel. This morning we turn our attention to Psalm 97. As I was prepping this for this week, as I was making my way through this psalm, one of the curious things about Psalm 97 is that in its, in its thoughts, in its words, in its phrases, it's largely unoriginal. What I mean by that is this, nearly every verse references, alludes to, or simply copies other parts of scripture. The writer appears to have reflected on the stories of God's people when God was creating the world, when he was delivering his people out of Egypt, when he was giving them his law. He's remembering the Psalms, the prayers of God's people that he grew up hearing. And now what he's doing is he's applying those words and stories that, he was so, that became so familiar to him to the present circumstances of God's people. Now with this Psalm in particular, we're not told what those circumstances are. Folks have speculated in any number of situations. But I think what you'll find is that they apply to us deeply, even this morning. And, and, and doing the, in, doing, in writing this way, this psalm is a great model for us. It's a reminder of what Paul wrote to the church in Rome, that whatever was written in day, former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Part of our prayer with, with the scriptures themselves is, is to remember that God has given them so that we might have hope, so that we might be instructed not only in how to live, but what it looks like to love him, what it looks like to know him, what it looks like to follow him. And so this morning we give our attention specifically to Psalm 97. Would you hear now the word of the Lord as I read to us the, whole, the entirety of Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world, the earth sees and trembles, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshippers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. Because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, O Lord, are most high over, are most high over all the earth. You were exalted far above all gods. You, oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the, hate, the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O oh, you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. The grass withers, the flower fades. Would you bow with me one more time in prayer as we consider these things together? Father, as I often pray, I pray again this morning that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would take us to the place where you dwell, to the place where you are, that we might know you, that we might behold you, so that we might walk away changed. Father, we need your spirit to apply these words deeply to our hearts, and we pray that you would do that even again this morning. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, trusting in his sacrifice on our behalf. Amen. There's a scene in the first Avengers movie where we meet Loki, the, the Norse god of, of, of mischief. And he's standing before a crowd of people. 
And he's used to getting his way, and so he begins just barking out commands. And at one point he says this, he simply yells, kneel! And eventually the crowd kneels. He goes on to say this, he says, is, this, is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of, the fr of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. What do you think? He's speaking to a crowd in his mind of, of paltry humans. And the summary of his statement is this. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. Reminds me also of a scene from The Mandalorian Season 2 where one of the bad guys simply says this. Everybody thinks they want freedom. What they really want is order. We were made to be ruled. We long for order to be imposed. We just want the right answers much of the time. We want and demand control. We want and demand power over everything. But ironically, we're often willing to kneel in order to attain a glimpse of that kind of power. We want to be ruled because we were made to be ruled. Do you agree? Disagree? What do you think? I want to make the case this morning that Psalm 97 says in part that Loki is actually not only right, but, that he's also, but it's also a reason for our joy. We were made to be ruled. We want to be ruled because it's a part of how we were created. And yet, we often resist it. If you look at where the psalm begins in, in verse 1, it says simply this, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. The Lord is king is what it tells us. And that is cause for much joy. It's a theme that runs throughout this psalm. We see it again in verse 8, verse 11, and again in verse 12. That there is joy in being ruled by the Lord. The question then becomes for us, what is it about the Lord himself that, and his rule that leads this God's people to joy? What is it that makes, that makes us in our, in our state such as it is, where we want to be ruled, where we find being ruled by God himself to be a source of joy? In the first five verses in particular, but running throughout the whole psalm, one of the themes of this psalm is this. It's very simply the statement that, that we see, where we see the greatness of God, that God himself is great. Look again at the second part of verse 1. It says, uh, it says, let the earth rejoice. And then it says this, let the many coastlands be glad. A key throughout this whole psalm is that the Lord himself has in view the whole earth. In verse 1 there, the, the, the phrase the coastlands are, that speaks of the islands in the farthest seas. It, it, imagine being in, in the Middle East and thinking how far, what would be the other side of, of the earth? What's the farthest we could go? He, he's saying, imagine the farthest islands. Even there the people would be glad at the Lord's ruling over them. The Lord here, of course, the, the, the small caps in your Bibles, is the personal name of God given to his people, reminding them that he is a God who keeps his promises. And what's fascinating about this statement is in the, in the culture in which this was written, no one else thought this way. You see, the, the, the statement here is that the Lord himself is not bound to places, to objects, to regions, and to statues. But that's what everyone else around the people of Israel would have been familiar with. That their gods would have been bound to, they would have sat on top of the nearest mountain. That they would overlook the crops that were there in the region. That they would have upheld the city walls, that they would have, they would have existed in the temples with the statues. 
But the statement here is something altogether different. The statement here is that God himself is global, and that's part of his greatness. He has the whole earth in view. Again, look with me again through the text itself. Look at verse, verse 5. It says this, he speak, he's there spoken of as the Lord of all the earth. In verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. Our God is global, and that's the reason that's the source for joy. And as we keep moving through the psalm, look into verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. God is global, but God is also hidden. Echoing these verses seem to echo God appearing on Mount Sinai to give his people their law back in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. And the reminder is this, we can't actually see him. And yet, even as hidden as he is behind the clouds and the thick darkness, he has made himself known. Think about this from Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The statement, the idea is this, that God is hidden. That on some level we can understand Him, we can hear Him, we can know Him, and yet we can never know Him fully. Because He is God, and we are not. We added this in the second part of verse 2. He goes on to say this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. God Himself is truth. God Himself is truth. Psalm 103 says something similar, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. His judgments stand true to affect those who are being oppressed, to set, set us free from all oppression. And finally, as we look through 3 through 5, it's almost... It's almost too much to try to summarize verses 3 through 5 in one word. The best I can do is to say this. When we speak of the greatness of God, we're speaking of nothing less than His absolute power. Look at, look at the images in verses 3 through 5. What words would you give to these? Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. How do those images hit you? How do those sit with you this morning? That fire would go before him, that lightnings would light up the skies, that the earth would see and tremble, which somehow is not opposed to us knowing the joy of this great God as well. And yet it works together. What word would you give? Holy, almighty, unequaled? Yes, all those and so much more. Let these images sit with you for a moment. The mountains melting like wax. A few years ago, I was in Colorado Springs visiting a couple of friends, and, and each of them on a different occasion, as we were driving around town, they were showing me kind of where they live and what life is like there. They made a point to point out that you always know where you are in Colorado Springs based on where the mountain range is, because it's not going to go anywhere. And if you ever get lost in town, you can look up and see the mountains, because like you're going to miss the mountains, right? And as you look up at the mountains, and you see that even in, the, in July, you see the snow, capped on, the snow capped on the mountains. But here... He's not talking about the snow melting. He's talking about the mountains themselves, these, these immovable objects, these things that seem so permanent, melting like wax at the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine what that would be like? Beloved, this is our God. This is the greatness of our God. We need to sit with these for a moment. Our God is global. He's not regional. He doesn't care mostly simply about Manhattan or Kansas or even the U.S. But the, the, the other implication of that is this. Because our God is king over all the earth, 
The implication is that there is no enemy territory on this earth. Now, are there places that are dangerous for Christians to live because living there and professing your faith would cost you your life? Absolutely. But know this, there is no enemy territory. There's no place on this earth where God is not the king. Not, your, not schools, not the homes you grew up in, not your past, not your present, not your future, not your place of employment, not that side of town where we wouldn't dare live or go at the wrong time of day. There is no place where God is not king. There is no enemy territory. But at the same time, we can acknowledge together that God is hidden from us in many ways. We will not understand what he's, what, what he's doing or why he's doing it or how he's doing it. It will often not be easy, but that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten you or that God has left you. It simply means this, his ways are not the same as your ways. And in our very finite wisdom, his ways will always be right and true, and ours will always fall short. God invites us to rely on him, to run to him in our need, to find rest in him. He promises to be faithful. He promises not to let us down. He promises to be true. And as a reminder that God is powerful, He is not only present with us, but He is the one who's in charge, and He knows no equal. God Himself is great. And as we keep working our way through the Psalms, I want to pause here for a moment of sorts and take a look at verses 6 and 7. I'm, I'm convinced that these verses are the thematic center of this whole psalm. And that, they, that as such, they, sort of, they, act, they serve as something of a hinge for the entirety of the psalm from the first part to the last part. And I want you to notice two things here. The first, is, the first of those things is this. The trueness of God is proclaimed all around because the heavens themselves are telling us about God's faithfulness his greatness and his constancy. So we read there in verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. He wants us to know that the heavens themselves are declaring his righteousness. Paul wrote to the church in Rome that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. He goes on to say that we are wicked without excuse. God is making himself known. He's showing himself to be powerful and he's showing himself to be great. The heavens themselves are making this announcement constantly. A number of years ago, my oldest brother was traveling through, through the western part of the country. And in the middle of the night, they were in a desert kind of area where there was almost no ambient lighting whatsoever. And he had an idea. He took his camera and the highway was empty and he set it down in the middle of the highway and just opened it up and had it starting shooting automatic pictures. And when he got back from his trip, he took it to get developed and he realized that none of those pictures were developed. And it's because the, the, to, the, to, the, to those developing the film, it appeared to be dark, just simply dark and so they just cast them aside. And so he went back and he said, no, I want these developed as well. You know what they displayed? A sky filled with stars. So many that you could barely even count them. The glory of God was there, even though it couldn't, wasn't seen by the developer initially. When you looked at these developed photographs, what you could see is a sky filled with stars. More stars than we would even see out here. The trueness of God is being proclaimed to all the earth and all the people see. But notice what else what comes to the second part of this hinge in verse 7. He says this, All worshipers, worshipers of images are put to shame. 
who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. The call is to worship him, the true God, the Lord himself. And yet what do we often find ourselves doing? We often find ourselves worshiping these worthless images, these things that will not satisfy. What, we're called, what this is called is simply an, an empty pursuit. Do you hear that? The reality of what it means, what this reveals about us is though, the, 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 though it's clear that God, is, that God is God, that He's in charge, that He rules over all of His power and His greatness and His wonder and His might, and yet we choose to follow after so, so much less. This is his point here. And the demonstration of God's ruling actually lets us know that it reveals our quickness to worship anything but Him. Well, and something happens in these verses. As we begin to look into verses 8 and beyond after this hinge, it begins to focus our attention specifically on God's people. Now the world is still in view. Let's make that clear in verse 9 in particular. God never changes His attention from the whole world. And look what, look, look what, we're, what we see beginning in verse 8. And what we're going to notice here is that not only is God great, but God is indeed good. If you look at verse 8, where does He go? He says, Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice. Zion is the name for Jerusalem, for the center of God's people, the center of his kingdom, of his people. This is the place where he dwells among his people. And even as it, as it speaks of the joy and gladness of, of God's people themselves, I wonder if, there, if the experience here is somehow quanti qualitatively different from what we saw in verse 1. That while the earth is called to rejoice in response to the greatness of God, here we see the goodness of God to his people, to all those who call upon him. And what do we notice? First of all, in verse 8, the connection point made there in the second part of the verse, because of your judgments, O Lord. It echoes verses 2 and verse 6, what we've already heard. The decisions of and actions of God are directly connected here to joy and the gladness of God's people. That God actually makes right right and makes wrong wrong and declares it to be so. He executes His will in this world. It leads to the gladness of His people. Because our world knows what it means to cry out in the midst of injustice, in the midst of systemic air, uh, manipulation, and the corruption and the, the fracturing that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis in this world. God is making things right. His judgments are true and He executes them and calls us to joy. We keep looking, looking, looking again at verse 9. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Nothing on earth, no deity that we could imagine, nothing will stand as his rival. He is unique. He has no equal. This is part of his goodness for us. That he stands over all that he has made, and there is none that would defy him. There's nothing that will happen in your life or in anyone else's life apart from his will. He has no rival, he has no equal. This indeed is part of his goodness to us. And then look again at verses 10 and 11 as we continue on. O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Again, he's speaking to his people and he promises to deliver, to preserve. He promises to give light and to give joy. And in an in appropriate response, he says, find my joy, live in my light, and hate evil. Reject all that is opposed to me, is what he calls us to. It's an appropriate response to God himself, the one who promises to sustain his people. Now, of course, we need to be careful here, don't we? 
Is this, is this promise that nothing bad will befall you in your life? No. Is it a promise that you will not suffer? No. Is it a promise that the world around you will always understand your faith and understand Jesus and respect you for your beliefs? No. But the promise is that in the midst of a world that is opposed to God, even the place where he rules over all, where his enemies still stand and still are at work, the promise is that he would preserve, that he would deliver, that he would sustain, that his light will go forth, that his power will be known. God himself is good, beloved. God himself is good. Do you believe that? Can you find rest in that? Some of us may need to acknowledge that, that we've convinced ourselves that we can, but, but deep down we know that we can't. And then we wrestle to find him in the midst of this. Remember, this psalm is built on the stories of God's people. It's built upon their words and their prayers when they cry out in, in, as, when they suffer, when they cry out not knowing the future, when they cry out wondering what is next. And God's response continually is, I am with you and I will not forsake you. When, they, when the, the people of God were in Egypt and they were enslaved and things kept getting harder and harder and harder, God tells, them, God tells his people himself that he heard their cries and he's responding to their cries and he will deliver them. And he's true to his word and he delivers them. Time and again we see the testimony of God's people throughout Scripture crying out to God in fear, in anger, in confusion, in chaos, in distress. And God himself is not afraid of their cries. He's not afraid of, of, of their questions. He's not afraid of their fears and their doubts. But he meets them where they are. And the psalm is a testimony. God himself is king. God himself rules over all things at all times and knows no equal. He sustains his people. And yet, as we've acknowledged, our experience over, over this life, our experience even today, is that we're still waiting for the completion of this psalm, aren't we? You see, there's part of this psalm, even, it, even as it from the beginning to the end, it proclaims that the Lord himself reigns, that God himself is king over all. It's acknowledging that we may still need to be convinced of this reality. And part of that is the honest response to this psalm. Because the psalm itself looks ahead, knowing that all things are not right. Knowing that all things are not the way we wish them to be. It looks ahead to the completion of God's arrival as king. What's the completion? The completion is Jesus himself. Because as Jesus came, and, and, and the word was announced that a child was born, men from far away came, came traveling, looking for the one who was born the king. And he wasn't in the palace where they thought. He was in the manger. He was in a food trough in a busy time of, of, of life for the, for the people who were gathered for the registry. He was born in a food trough and he, and he, was, and he grew up in a, in, a, in a very plain kind of ordinary life. We don't know what, we know almost nothing about the life that he lived for most of his growing up and into his early adulthood. And when he came as an adult and he began to, began to proclaim the gospel of God to say the kingdom, is, the kingdom of God is at hand, his message was that the kingdom of God is indeed here. That he is the king. And yet he was humble. He walked most places he went, most likely. He hung out with a small group of people. There were crowds that surrounded him regularly, but eventually they too wandered away. When he, were, he, he, when he entered Jerusalem to, to declare again his, in a fresh way his kingship, he wasn't riding on a horse with a, with a great regalia. He was riding on a humble foal, a colt, a, colt, 
a small horse or a donkey. And he rode in not to conquer, not to, not to get rid of those who were in charge, not to remove Rome from the land, but he rode in to suffer, to actually be rejected by the chief priests, by the religious leaders of the day, by those in all, any kind of thought, uh, perceived authority over him. They simply rejected him flat out. And then he went on to die. And we thought we were done with this king. And then he rose again from the dead to declare that he is the king that has come to show, to prove once and for all that God himself rules over all things, that he is great and that he is good. And some years later after those events, as God's people continue to reflect on the whole of the scriptures, we, turn to, to, we can turn to Colossians 1 and hear these words regarding the same king. Chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 15, beginning of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Might we say the hidden God. Jesus is his image. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is indeed the king. Jumping to chapter 2 of Colossians, we read these words. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all, uh, head of all rule and authority. Beloved, this is our Lord. This is our King. This is the one who came humble who died and who lives again. Your God, your King, is great. He is powerful. He is hidden. He is global. He is over all the earth. But He is also good. And in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's good that we want to be ruled. We were made to be ruled. We were made to hear the voice of God. We see it from the earliest pages of Scripture as God speaks through chapter 1 of Genesis. And even if he, as he begins the command to, to Adam and Eve and what they can eat and what they cannot eat, and he sets them free in the garden to work and to live, we hear that we were never created to be absent from this God, to be independent of Him. But from the very beginning, we were made to hear His voice and to follow Him and to know Him. This is our King. But let's circle back to verse 7, which I think, again, is the very center of the psalm. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. We're put to shame when we worship money, when we worship power, when we worship influence, when we worship status, when we worship accomplishments, when we worship things, when we give ourselves to anything except God alone. But that's who we are, isn't it? One writer, a man named David Foster Wallace, a number of years ago giving this commencement address, it's, you may have heard some of these words before, said this to, to the graduating class of Kenyon College a number of years ago. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody worships. But he goes on to say this, and, and again, I, I think he's, he's going to err here so shortly in these words that I say, but it's important for us to hear. 
He says the compelling reason for this, maybe for, for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, is that pretty much anything else will worship, that you worship will eat you alive. In other words, we choose something spiritual to worship. We, we choose religion because anything else will eat us alive. He goes on to say this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap, tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb, which, to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Again, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. But the message of the psalm is it's not just material things of this life. Any God that we would imagine and shape after our own image, any statue that we would make, any religion or philosophy that we would come and say, this is absolute truth, this is what defines us more than anything else, it's going to eat you alive. Anything else will eat you alive. But beloved, God is king. And our king lived, died, and rose again for us. Our king came to suffer in our place so that we might indeed have life. We were made to be ruled. We need to be ruled. Long for this, beloved. Again, do you hear the commands of the text? In verse 6, verse 7, Worship him, all you gods. In verse 12, Rejoice in the Lord, all you righteous. Give thanks to his holy name. Why? Because he is truly great. He is global. He is hidden. He is true. He is faithful. But he is also good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice at the thought that you rule with a hand and with a mind that knows us inside and out, knows us better than we know ourselves. You know what we need so deeply that you pray for us by your Spirit even when we don't know what to pray for. Father, even as we struggle to worship so much in this life and rely and rest in the things of this world, remind us that you indeed are King over all of it. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.